0: Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the incredible contribution they make to the richness of the life in this city and region. Today, Studio 19 is once again in the parliamentary triangle at IPA ACT's headquarters. And I'm pleased to say that a couple of IPA's closest neighbours... Chris Moraitis, PSM, and the head uh, the head of the Attorney General's Department, and Rosemary Huxtable, PSM, the Secretary of the Department of Finance, have dropped by for a chat. Rosemary Huxtable has held the position of Secretary of the Department of Finance since 2016, a position with enormous responsibility for the financial performance, accountability, and governance of the Australian public purse. And one can only imagine what it's been like the cheques that have been written in the last six months. Rosemary, welcome to Work With Purpose. Thank you, David. Chris Moraitis, PSM, is the Secretary of the Attorney-General's Department. A career public service, Chris spent the vast bulk of his career in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, rising to the position of Deputy Secretary before moving across in the same position to the Attorney-General's Department before... He was appointed to the role of secretary in 2014. Chris, welcome to Work With Purpose. Great to be here. Thank you. Rosemary, if I might begin with you, and we're now six months into the pandemic. We've moved to the next stage, the, the next normal. How are you managing the challenges in front of you at the moment, given that the context is continuing to shift?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question because I think uncertainty is the theme of the year. Uh, where we've come from, when we look back on it, I think we would want to impose some sort of pattern and logic on that and say, well, we had a pretty good idea at this point in time and this was our response. But in reality, when we were living in it, of course... There was a lot of things coming at us from all sorts of directions. So we had to be very flexible. And I think even now, while we all want to impose that sort of sense of certainty uh, on what we do, we're still in uncertain times. We're still... It's still very important that we focus on the health uh, advice and on the evidence. uh, And, you know, we keep grounding our responses uh, in that. Uh, The capacity of us... Uh, as an organisation. You know, like we've been stretched. I think all our organisations have been stretched uh, over the last uh, six months. But I would say, you know, my reflection is that we've got very strong institutions. Uh, You know, we're part of very strong institutions uh, and strong relationships which really have been able to lift and uh, and respond, you know, very effectively. Uh, And I've got a lot of confidence that we'll continue to do that. Uh, into the future. Uh, You know, not just the institutions that you might normally think of, you know, the parliament, uh, the executive... Uh, but also, you know, the way in which the federations work together. You know, I think that's been a great example of how when you've got, you know, a very difficult issue that people will come together and work very effectively together. Uh, but also the relationships that we've built over many years with our stakeholders, with our external partners, you know, across the Commonwealth, uh, the way that we work together, uh, you know, I think it's given at, at a very... We've got a very good grounding of sort of collaboration, which means we can, you know, I think... Sort of look forward with confidence uh, to Can how you we Chris, respond.
0: Um, th- that same challenge
2: of uncertainty. Very um, much. I mean, I, um, I mean, Rosemary absolutely spot on. It's the uncertainty of what's coming, but also the uncertainty of the duration of what is the new normal, and then defining what is that new normal. So it really is, you know, from my perspective and for you know the organisation is uh, keeping that. Mindset of being prepared and adaptable f- for any contingency and are working on the, on the basis of the systems and relationships we've been building up. Um, there's a whole myriad of issues that emerge that we need to deal with because, you know, as Rajmi said, we'll look backwards and find a, a rhythm and a pattern, but, I mean, going forward will have a mindset which will help us and the, the mindset will be that of being prepared for the uncertainty and the duration of it. You can't say on the 15th of, you know, we've tried this, 15th of November, we'll go back to what we were like in January or December last year. That's not going to happen. And the question is, when is that tipping point into a n- normality? But through that, pro- the process we're in now, we need to just have that flexibility and ability to just go... And at the same time do our businesses as uh, BAU work as well, which is, which is building up and is I- imperative to be done. Mm. Uh, and we're all in that same boat together and we are a really collegiate organi- uh, group
0: of people working together. And it's interesting, isn't it, though, because when you, when you strip it all away, it really is a people challenge, isn't it? It's really to organise your people and manage your people and motivate your people and keep your people on task that is going to help them to deliver for the Australian people. So, Rosemary, to you, that people challenge, how how have you gone about that?
1: Well, I don't think it starts the day you're in a crisis. So it's all about the work that you do as an organisation to build your capability over the long term. And for us, uh, we'd put a lot of investment into our... Uh, technology platforms. I mean, never expecting that we would need to move a workforce out of the office mm. overnight, uh, but we were able to effectively do that at the same time as having to produce a very high volume output, much higher volume uh, than we've had to deal with in previous uh, years, just because of the pace uh, and volume of decision making and the need to. able to support a government to do that, you know, iterative uh, decision making. So it is about having uh, the tools, uh, but it's also about having uh, a culture in the organisation that can lift and collaborate and and work effectively uh, together. Uh, I mean, we very much focused on the team level so i think you can set the tone from the top and a lot of people talk about that and there's no doubt we've worked hard you know over a number of years on uh, you know establishing our expectations about you know, leadership behaviours and values in the organisation and how we're going to work together. And I think we've got very good results out of that. But it's really what's happening at the team level, you know, where you've got those groups of just, you know, half a dozen people who work most closely together every day uh, and how you support them to work effectively when you're in a very challenging, uncertain environment. You know, remembering when we were at the start of, of this, You know, no-one really had a sense of what it would mean for them personally, what it could mean for their families. You know, people were worried about vulnerable people in their own uh, families. So you're dealing with that uncertainty within individuals at the same time as having to adapt to a quite different uh, work uh, environment. You know, some of it's very practical. You know, just we had uh, remote learning packages. You know, we had GovTeams, which is a, a Teams product that we... Used Gov teams interestingly has gone from 30,000 users in March to 100,000 users today. You know, a, a explosion that we never would have expected. But actually, using those tools to give people uh, skills around how to manage teams remotely, how to set yourself up. I think we called it remote ready. You know, how how to enable yourself in in your home environment to be uh, effective. So you know, it was a whole. Uh, range of things. I'm sure Chris could add more in terms of the experience uh, at AGD. Uh, But we, we, and I know Chris uh, did this too, we've we've surveyed our staff uh, in the course of the year and people have uh, overwhelmingly reported higher levels of productivity as Mm -hmm. they, you know, see it uh, from, uh, you know, working in a different way. Um, So really the challenge going forward is how do you harness all that? How do you harness the positives, I guess, that you can take out of a situation like this and and put that into uh, the future, you know, when hopefully we get to a, a different normal.
0: And that's a question I might put to you, Chris. How do you do that? You know, we were, we were talking just before the podcast about bottling the good of this period and sustaining it in a way that that flexibility is still there, but the productivity, importantly, is still there. So so how are you, as as leaders in the public service, going to do that?
2: I think um, Rosemary was pretty spot on on a couple of those elements. You talked about the technology. And you can't start about the conversation about the culture on the day of the crisis. You've had to have embedded that from way back. And we've been living on that cultural dimension. I say the two things that got us through in AGD have been the two Ts, the technology and the trust. When I say trust, it's a two-way trust management's trust in the staff to get on with it, and, and people's trust in the leadership to look after their, their well-being. So those things have, have been sustained. The, the issues that are going forward and bottling that experience are really tricky. And it can't just be um, gut feelings, it has to be based on what we can pick up from the evidence of what, what's, what really works, what doesn't. So it's a big work for us to work out what is empirically true. So, you know, question one, it's been much more productive is that true? How do we prove that? Yeah. What do we mean by that? Yeah, people might say they're productive. And secondly, but are they and secondly, productive? because we were productive between now, between March and now, because we had this embedded culture. If you maintain, you know, absolute remote work for a long, long time, that culture dissipates a bit. So, how do you replenish that culture? So, my first question to to my staff is, how do we work on that uh, engagement cultural piece in, in that flexible work arrangement? So, we maintain those connections, yeah, those things points. that happen in a relationship in, a, in an office space, Re- replicate that, uh, build the trust, have the knowledge about what is productive, when it's productive, um, fine-tune the technology. Uh, and the key thing with technology will be about um, our managers and leaders, and, and again, Rosemary alluded to the team level stuff. If you're going to make all the technology work, you'll need to have really, really good um, leadership skills Uh leadership in a remote way, but building it all together through whatever collaboration, relationship building, leading by example, bringing people in in, a, in an arm's length virtual way, that's going to take real leadership skills and that's what we have to build on. So, And then leaving aside the normal things we have got to think about is what is the new flexibility post-COVID? Because we're all invested in flexible work arrangements. That's the reality. Um, and how do we build on that? So we, we've got a tiger team in our department working on this very issue of what will flexible work look like uh, after this is all done um, and will it change? So, you know, there are the sort of things we have to work on. So it's a combination of maintaining the cultural vision and the commitment we have there and then learning from this experience in an objective, evidence-based way. We can all share. We don't have the answers. I mean, we want to know that um, and this is the stuff that we'll build on because I think it's a great opportunity, not just a challenge.
1: Mm. Rosemary? Can I just raise or add two things to that? I mean, one is around the sort of mental well-being uh, of people who are working in that remote environment and I absolutely agree with Chris to... to um, so to charge into this head-on, you know, there was a great common purpose uh, and an expectation that this would go for a period of time, a period probably since past. The capacity to actually maintain that over long periods, you know, I think can be quite challenging uh, for people. And one of the things we've done, and, and I'm sure Chris has too, is to work quite actively with our staff about uh, the, the indicators where you might not be coping as well as you uh, think you know, may be, and actually really encouraging people to reach out for help uh, in those environments. Uh, and I think that goes for leaders as well. Yes. You know, I think for all of us it's been, uh, you know, there have been times when it's been difficult when you're trying to juggle a lot of things, you're carrying a lot of responsibility, there are decisions you're uh, advising on that, you know, have ver- very big uh, consequences for the country uh, and you're also, you know, potentially partially working remotely and, you know, so there's a lot of things that you're juggling. And then we also have the same issues where, you know, we're thinking about our families and our friends and parents and, you know, all the normal things that people are concerned about. And, and
0: how have you coped with that, personally? Because I'm, I'm It hasn't, it hasn't by... always been
1: easy, no. I, I have to say, and, and I think it's important that we sort of admit that it's not always easy and that you can feel the weight uh, of that. I was asked, uh, I did a stand-up for, for staff actually using the GovTeams platform, uh, which we've tried to do quite a lot to stay connected with people, uh, and someone asked me uh, at that what I'd found the hardest. And, and I think for me it was actually being part of the decision-making environment, you know, where you were providing advice, uh, where the decisions that government would (laughs) take would have great consequences. Uh, And, you know, that's a big responsibility and it's very hard to have certainty at that point in time. You're often on, you know, partial evidence and there's levels of uncertainty. So, you know, that was a burden, I think, that, um, you know, a lot of people in senior leadership positions uh, felt uh, but also just recognizing that you know you're working very long hours but you haven't got your team around you in quite the same way that you normally have uh, I mean I was certainly working um, you know one or two days a week uh, from home at the peak of the of the pandemic uh, and I really missed my, my little team, you know, my little executive support team who would always be sort of there to, to say, you know, remember you've got to do this call, would yeah, you like t- a <laughs> cup of tea, which is, you know, a very nice sort of offer that no one's making at home. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, it becomes a very long day and yeah. you can feel very isolated. And uh, so, you know, we're human. We, we sort of have the same, um, you know, the same struggles as other people, I guess, in those environments. Yeah. And for you,
2: Chris? Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's exactly right. But I think, you know, at, at, at you know the secretary level, depsec level, in the public service, we're more familiar with greyness and complexity. And so that's helped us a bit. Uh, but you're absolutely right. It, is, it has been really, you know... Difficult and tiring. I think from my perspective and my team's perspective has been just it's just been relentless since the beginning of the year Uh, and you know, it was interesting that um, we look I, look. I got my staff to show me the um, the figures for leave, um, days off, that sort of thing. And there's obviously been a, a period where people haven't taken breaks, which is counterintuitive. Yeah. So we've been nudging our staff to have short staycations. You know, being trying to be sympathetic and say, look, we know you can't go very any places. You won't go to you know <laughs> Bali or Europe, but just take a few days here and there. So, and I did the same thing last week. I took four days off because I just needed that break. Uh, you don't realize uh, that it was a, it was an interesting because it reminded me of my time when I was in dfed and I was the coup when we had all these embassies ab- abroad and there was always a crisis. And the first rule you learn in HR is that the head of mission will always say, no, 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 I don't need... Ha- I've, got, I'm a- I've got the crisis under control.
0: <laughs> you know, and s- <laughs> they don't, I don't need any support from... They don't need support from Canberra.
2: And you think, <laughs> yeah, OK, um, yes, I know you're... That's gra- all right, but we'll start planning for... Uh, a bit of a, a helping hand coming our way, and that's that's just part of the mindset. We have got to remember how, in crisis, after a while, you hit a, you hit a wall. Uh, and uh, you know, f- for uh, many of us, we were working remotely, but I think from my perspective, it was mainly working in the office. It was just the nature of the work. Um, and quite a few of our staff were were missing um, uh, uh, from the office, and also we had a lot of our staff with our uh, Victorian-based staff in the recent months has been really um, you know difficult, and we've been having some conversations. You know, mass, you know all the all the team you know, had a discussion recently and we talked about just really empathizing that, you know, we know what, uh, what what you're going through. We want to be as helpful as we can. We're thinking about you. And we're trying to make it as easy as we can, but we want to have uh, your interests uh, looked after and particularly your health interests. Mm. And so right. things like, for example, making sure that if they needed a pass to get to the office in Melbourne, you, your response was straight away. So they, that was all done very quickly and things for the daycare and stuff like that. We were there for them that 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 little things like that really help in a time like this
0: yeah it was interesting just before we, we started with the podcast you know you reflected quite sincerely about the pride that you've felt um, in your people and rosemary i imagine it's the same yeah. what, what are you pro- what are you proud about what what has made you proud
2: well, there's a whole variety of things. One that people did, you know, what they've, you know, been prepared to do, which is their normal work in our space. It's the legal work. It's the workplace relations work. It's work health and safety, stuff that they really mobilised on. But also just being agile and, and shifting to other things. You know, we're a pretty small department like, well, like Rosemary's. You know, 10% of our workforce put their hand up to be deployed. You know, we deployed people to Services Australia. People worked in the Treasury Department to help out uh, Treasury. We even sent policy officers to the Health Department because they were under a lot of pressure. And we were doing our normal stuff as well, which is, you know, all the legal work, all the, you know, you know, privacy app here, you know, it requires the, 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 you know, the the WhatsApp, the the app requires a a privacy statement. Uh, The uh, JobKeeper work required changes to the Fair Work Act uh, provisions and awards and stuff like that. Uh, Our work health and safety um, guidelines were pretty much really worked over and given guidelines and, you know, millions of hits on the on the websites and all that sort of thing. And then um, people really were there uh, for each other too. And that's, that's good and that's what people want to be doing. And as you said, the key is to how do you bottle all that, maintain that engagement. But the engagement doesn't happen because of crisis. A crisis show whether you're engaged or not. Yeah. This just reminds us all that culture is a really important part uh, of an organisation's ability to sustain itself, uh, short-term, medium-term, long-term. And this is probably a, a nice reminder of that reality.
0: And for you, Rosemary, the, the, the pride, I imagine it'd it, it be very similar.
1: Oh, absolutely. And uh, the the number of people who are willing to put their hand up to go and do something different. We had uh, our Comcar car drivers who clearly couldn't drive, you know, the way they were because uh, members of Parliament weren't moving around in the same way. Uh, A number of those went down to Services Australia and did things that they'd never really done before or hadn't done for many years. Uh, I went down and visited them, uh, our staff at Services Australia and you know, they were just Fantastic. They were pretty excited to be there. They were, they really were on the front line, making a real difference, and they could see that. But it was, it's, it wasn't work that they were used to, but they were willing to give it a go. Some of them are still down there doing that work, right. you know, even now. Uh, and, I mean, yeah, look, people just really put in and and had that flexibility. Uh, you know, they were working in a different way, but their output, like, quantitatively, our output was up. Like, I've got measures of just the amount of decision-making that we were supporting, you know, the number of costings we agreed, the number of briefs uh, that were written for the uh, decision-making processes. You know, they, they were up exponentially on, on previous years. Uh, and, but also, there's a lot of other work that finance does that probably isn't so visible to people. Uh, And, you know, that was also really critically important. You know, getting the governance frameworks right, making sure the indemnity arrangements were in place for some of the things that were happening. Uh, The work that we did with our shareholder uh, entities, uh, you know, who, who were on the commercial sort of side, so were being impacted, uh, by the pandemic and the effect of, you know, change, changing patterns mm-hmm. uh, around, um, you know, uh, around commercial, you know, behaviours and activities. Like, there was a, a lot of work done, you know, right across the organisation and I think people were, you know, un- unswervingly... Uh, you know, flexible and and willing to put in long hours and you know do the job basically.
2: I'm just going to add to that, Rosemary, because both our departments, whether it's the finance on the money, uh, AGs on the law, you know, we're there in the room all the time helping. You know, the primary drivers of you know, whether it's the trade uh, or the economic or the health stuff or the submissions or you know, MPPs, all that stuff happening, we're there, and our staff were there all the time supporting the the the, the, the whole APS effort.
1: Yeah, so I think we're kind of the Enablers. Yeah. You know, and that was whether really it's the money or the whether money. it's, you know, let's <laughs> the, do the it money le- and, the and can we do it legally? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Listen, what, one of the uh, the great features of this podcast is uh, our questions from IPA's Future Leader Committee. And I know you're both very interested in um, the development of, of young staff. So, questions to both of you. The first one comes from a regular, Steph McLennan from Geoscience Australia, and she asks. Uh, digitisation is a core part of the future of work and the last six months has seen it shift from the future to current work. What can aspiring leaders do now to equip themselves to lead in a more digital APS with increasingly distributed teams? Chris, I'll throw to you first.
2: Yeah, I, I think I, this is a very good question uh, and uh, real credit to raising that. You know, counterintuitively, again, you, th- you talk about digitalisation and it's about, it's, it's not going to be about technology for a, an emerging leader because the emerging leaders who are now, they're digital natives. I, I realise this with my graduates and we were talking about remote work. I realised that they've been working on computers and remotely through the university, so they know all that. The challenge for them now would be Um, the emotional people aspect of being a leader in a digital world because that's what's going to be really necessary to um, magnify, uh, bring it all together. And it's not going to require digital intelligence. It's going to require the emotional intelligence that we all seek for uh, all our leaders to have, to bring people together, to understand, to empathise, to reflect about what impact are you having as a manager on the screen with all your staff, are you bringing everyone into the conversation? Do you let er- the, the, the person always talk? Do the people not get a chance to have the conversation? Do half your team feel excluded by the process? Um, do you feel and understand and empathise where people are coming from? Can you pick up the signs that someone else is not coping with the setup? Um, what can you do to improve things? What can you do to get things going and build the team? Because you know it's okay to go into a crisis where everyone knows everybody. As a leader, you know yeah. who who does what. What happens when there's a churn? You know, there are people who already have started working in, in organisations who have never met their staff in person. That's a really interesting phenomenon if yeah. you think about it. So the qualities for an emerging leader to think about going into this new normal, this is going to be the reality, is not about what sort of software system or what sort of technical technology is going to be, because that's going to change, of course, at a, sp- at a, sp- a speed of light, as we know. And we've adapted pretty well. It's the emotional, uh, intellectual, uh, the EQ stuff of leadership that's going to help us bring it all together, in okay. my
0: view. Rosemary, what's your, your yeah. advice to uh, to these emerging leaders in this new world?
1: I think a lot of the leadership behaviours that you need and have always sort of needed to be an effective leader remain, whether you're talking about digital platforms or or other platforms and a lot of those Chris's... Uh, spoken about. I mean, to me, one of the big things is about how do you listen and enable innovation in the workplace? Uh, And in many ways, leaders have to get out of the way uh, of innovation. You know, I think I don't think that from the top you're going to uh, you know, think up all the bright ideas in your organisation that's going to revolutionise the way that it works, what you have to do is actually enable it to happen Mm. at the team level. And for our young leaders coming up, uh, I think, you know, one of the challenges is how do you create those workplaces where people can be innovative, uh, Mm. where they can uh, have uh, ideas based on their experience in the workplace. Usually, they're the people who know better ways of doing things, you know that's a sort of internally focused thing, but also having that sense of the client uh, perspective and the client experience, uh, and being very open to that, so that they can actually work with you know external stakeholders uh, and clients to come up with uh, different and more effective ways using technology. You know, which is the great. A great enabler if you can get it to work effectively for you. So you know, for me, it's about how do you enable that innovation really at the coalface. And uh, you know, our, our young leaders. Well, as Chris said, they've got they are natives. They've got they don't have a fear of it. Mm. Uh, but you know, they there will be others coming up. Uh, you know, after them who know even more. Uh, and you've got to allow those people to also sort of thrive in that in that environment.
0: Mm, totally. Uh, Chris, this is from one of your people, Jack Milne, uh, from the Attorney-General's Department. And he asks, again, question to both of you, as the Department of Finance was awarded the 2019 Graham Innes Disability Employment Award and the Secretary of the Attorney-General's Department is the co-chair of the Department's Disability Network, the Celebrating Ability Network, how can we leverage the future of work as an opportunity to accelerate our progression towards a more inclusive workplace?
2: Yeah, um, it's a good question. I mean, inclusive workplace is actually something we need to think about in terms of the experience of the last six months. The conversations we've been having about flexible work, ability to people work remote, they've been discussed in a in a In a conversation for the past where you need to prove why this is good for the organization, the last six months has actually shown you can do things can be good for the organization in a remote way flexible work um, giving people the opportunities to do things that uh, in a nine to five presenteeism mindset it was always the assumption that it's too hard Hence you know I'm sure rosemary and I would have and endorsed the if not one our principle of Flexible work, for example. and Whether you're you're a woman with young children, whether you're coming back from maternity leave, or you have a disability, you prefer to work a certain way. Um, All those things, um, as leaders, we've been arguing that it's an if not presumption, why not presumption that you should enable that to happen. Well, guess what? It's happened anyway, and it's worked. And everyone's been able to see that it can work. And everyone's been able to see where people who've been pushing the line of flexible work felt somehow stigmatised because they've asked for part-time work or they've asked for that or they've sought this adjustment. And it's almost been like a demandeur asking for something. I think people have realised, hey, this is for everyone. And therefore, maybe that changes the world view about um, inclusion. And that's... I I don't think it's going to... Radically, it uh, still requires that conversation and the reinforcement of why inclusive workplaces make a difference. But it's actually shown that there are that it's possible, and maybe that the tone of the conversation can be a bit more productive and focused on how do you create a workplace that's inclusive? How do you well, forget about the stigma. There's no stigma about you know flexible work. I mean, I'd had conversations in the past with focus groups in my department about flexible work and mainly women, of course, then that flip side of that is why aren't men doing flexible work? And so now it's like, well, hey, we've been through flexible work and working 90% of the time, and guess what? It works. So maybe I can come and have that conversation about flexible work. Um, You know, our our disability network, the Celebrating Ability Network, obviously has been engaged in this process of how we work. Um, Overwhelmingly, our staff um, find that... um, that the last few months have been positive in many ways. We're just going to build on those experiences. So this is actually one of the great opportunities coming out of this, that inclusive workplace conversations can be a bit more grounded on real experience, not just theoretical, you know, trying to disprove that it's not bad. Mm. Uh, Rosemary, I imagine
0: similar for you?
1: Yeah, I I think uh, also some of those tools that we've had, uh, they're really... uh, they work very well uh, for some of our staff uh, with disability who might find it harder to move around the office, uh, for example, who sometimes feel that they're not heard uh, at meetings. I mean, we've had uh, what we call the um, five on five, so five staff with disability talking with five of our leaders, you know, around their experience. And many of them were saying, well, we, we find that our Gov Teams meetings, it's a lot easier for us. Uh, We can put up our hand, you know, and and we'll be heard. Uh, We don't have the same issues sometimes with, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, hearing, uh, you know, we can turn up our volume, we don't have to move around, you know, in quite the same way that we had to. So there's lots of benefits uh, from that for us as well. Uh, But we really just need, we need to work with all our staff uh, our staff with uh, with disability in terms of how we bring people into the organisation and then we, how we create an environment in which they can thrive. And a lot of that is just working directly with them.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, we've had uh, some very good outcomes in terms of the percentage of, our, of staff with disability. We've put a lot of effort into to building that up. Uh, but I do think that the last six months has almost, you know, shown that there's other ways to work. I mean, we mm-hmm. do a lot of hybrid meetings now mm-hmm. where some of us are in the office and yep. some of us are online. Uh, you know, that can also really Enable uh, people.
0: Mm, great, uh, and a final question from our future leaders. Another one from the Attorney General's Department. Deanne Allen asks you, uh, Secretary Moraitis. Um, you established your career and developed your leadership style at Dfat. What was it like transitioning to a totally new department in a leadership position?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, it was. It was great. <laughs> Get to
0: the chase. <laughs> uh, seriously. Um,
2: A lot of the work that I should do in DFAT, whether it's international law or national security, there was aspects of that, but to be fair, most of the work of the Attorney General's department I wasn't familiar with. Um, I really didn't know much about it. But, you know, Rosemary and I know, and I think all our colleagues would know, that leadership is not about being the smartest person in the room. So the transition is relatively easy if you accept that reality, that you're there to inspire people, to give them trust, to create that environment. And if you've got those tools, you can do that. So I have no problem being in a room full of Brilliant lawyers, and they can tell me what the law is. And my job is not about second guessing or, you know, saying what the judge said in that judgment of 20, you know, 1925 or something like that. I come for other reasons, and I'm there for other for other purposes. Because as one of the secretaries who you know, PMC said, well, don't worry about it, Chris. If your legal still's not up to the, what it were, you know, when you were younger, but we've got enough lawyers in AGs to <laughs> worry about that. Your job is to lead, yeah. and uh, being in accepting the reality of leadership is. Not knowing everything about the subject matter—that's not why you're why you're the boss. Uh, always necessarily, you always have to have a technical expertise, but coming there with those qualities of leadership, um, I think the advantage in DFAT is—I've uh, I've said this to several colleagues—is that you get that experience of running a large mission. Um, for example, I was High Commissioner in Papua New Guinea, yep. you know, and that taught you a lot about leadership. It wasn't necessarily about policy, but you've, you get used to the fact that there's no such thing <laughs> dealing as with
0: issues. dealing with issues. <laughs> and it's about
2: people 90% yeah. of the time and about conditions and that thing really, really uh, makes a difference. So it was, a, as I said, it was a pretty easy transition if you accept those premises. Okay.
0: Now, listen, I do want to ask you a final question and it sort of, it, it it means that you have to sort of travel forward in time a little. If you, So I want you to go forward, uh, maybe let's go back, Let's go forward 10 years and then ask you to look back on now, on this time, what do you hope sticks around? What What would you like to describe or what would you like to see as part of your legacy, having been part of this leadership cohort of the APS at such a critical time? Describe mm. it for me. Yeah. What do you see? It's pretty hard, what do you hard, hear?
1: Yeah, it's a pretty hard question. But, I, look, for me, it's about how our nation uh, made the sort of difficult passage through what was a, you know, unpredictable crisis situation and the way in which we supported effective decision-making that meant that we were on a sustainable recovery path. Uh, You know, the stakes are high here. Uh, you know, our capacity to, to seed that economic uh, recovery, you know, through what will still be uncertain times going forward. Uh, you know, in t- like, 10 years seems like a long way away, but, you know, the recovery path will be uh, inevitably a long one yeah. and that we've come out of that, you know, as a strong country, sort of t- taking advantage of what we can uh, to sort of strengthen our competitiveness in the world. Uh, you know, I think they're the things... And, and that we have, you know, uh, a strong community also that's emerged from that. Mm. Chris,
2: final I, word to yeah, you. Yeah, you know, picking up on those points. I think in 10 years' time, I look back and think... Hopefully, will be thinking and saying... Yeah, but that, you know that period showed that, you know, uh, the institutions of state, the Commonwealth, the state, the nation, you know, that we're part of, they can make a good contribution to the community and they're an important part of... Of society, and it's it's sometimes taken for granted, but when the going gets tough, uh, the institutions of state can make a, a positive difference to the lives of many, many people in a really good way. And the trust dimension that's been built up in the last few months, hopefully, that's sustained so that we don't go through that period of the last 10 15 years where there's been this cynicism about the state and its role. Um, It's not there to create problems, it's there to actually enable and to protect uh, people in in the good times and particularly in the bad times. And I think if there's a newfound respect and appreciation of why, you know, the apparatus of states exist, um, that'll be, I think, an enduring legacy, especially in uncertain times as we go forward.
0: Chris, Rosemary, thank you for your service. And thank you for being my guests today on Work With Purpose. Ladies and gentlemen, we're now just five short weeks away from the commencement of the Global GovComs Festival, which is part of the OECD's Government Aftershock Global Dialogue. We have announced this week that the event will follow the sun and run for 24 hours on November the 17th, featuring content from around the world. One quick story. I was on a Zoom call this week to someone in Mali, West Africa, and they confirmed a speaker for the event. Now, the story of how the government in Mali is managing communication is inspiring. So jump on to GovComs, Google GovComs, and it'll come up and make sure you register yourself uh, for that conference. Because the other big news today is that our good friends and long-term partners here at IPA ACT have come on board as an event partner. So a very big thanks to Carolyn Walsh and the team here at IPA for their support It's going to be great. A few sleepless nights ahead for me, no doubt, but it will be a great conference as part of the OECD's Government Aftershock Global Dialogue. Work with purpose. If you would like to leave a rating or review for the program, please do so because that does help us to be found. And if you do see the social media promotion, please share and pass it along. Thanks again to IPA and to the APSC for their ongoing support. This program would not happen without it. That's it for this edition of Work With Purpose. We'll be back at the same time next week, but for the moment, it's bye for now.
2: Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.